0: Okay, we're continuing in our series in Revelation, and the reason why we read from Zechariah earlier, that previous reading, is to just warm us up for what we're about to read here now in Revelation chapter 11. Again, it's this crazy kind of apocalyptic literature, and yet there is a clear meaning to it for us. So hear the word of God from Revelation chapter 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony... The beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. And for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and heavy hail. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, some of you may not like what I'm about to say. Um, You may not even like me after that, after what I'm about to say, okay? And that is the genres of fantasy and sci-fi, I don't like them, okay? (laughs) You know, Marvel, DC, Star Trek, yeah, just not my thing. I loved Star Wars growing up. Pass it on to my kids, but now, for me, it's just all fading. Even Lord of the Rings, not that big of a fan. How many of you are proud of me so, for being so bold to be able to admit that, right? <laughs> but, you know, I do know why people like that kind of genre. It allows people to dream and imagine what life could be like if we really could go up against the forces of evil. We love the inspiring theme of the hope that heroes bring to us. Humanity is dealing with forces that oppose us, that threaten our existence and our flourishing. And if we can do something about it, by golly, as Americans, we will, right? That's the can-do American spirit put to story. Now, the reason why I don't like all that is because humanity has a blind spot when it comes to thinking that they are the heroes. We don't realize that we're more part of the problem than the solution. And, you know, that you may not agree with me on that, but that for myself has dampened my willingness to uh, allow my imagination to be entertained. But why that's okay, for me at least, is because I still get that deep soul yearning for God, for something to make things right again. And that's from the book of Revelation right here. I mean, it's just as crazy as we've seen. The only difference is that here it happens to be true. See, what seems like comic book-like fantasy, it's really grounded in reality, based on the truth of God, our creator. That's the brilliance of the book of Revelation. It gives us access to understand what the world is really like, the problems in it, as well as the hope of surviving it. And so yes, as we've just heard, another crazy passage, but with a very simple story arc and message. We're being called as the church to keep doing what we're doing, and that is believing the news about Jesus even testifying to it, and that he's going to return to the world. See, we're following on from the previous passage, Revelation 10, verse 11, because we believe that God speaks, and he speaks coherently, logically, relationally, and so he wants us to follow his train of thought. Revelation 10:11 says this, And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. God has called us, the church, to keep believing and testifying to what he has done in sending Jesus, and that he will return. Now for us, that, as a church, that seems kind of straightforward, but we do run into spiritual problems if we're really honest about it. Given the immensity of the problems of the world, we get overwhelmed and we actually don't believe that God can do anything in the world. We think that the world is wrong, but we don't think that God's solution is right. Can God accomplish all that he said he would? The signs don't look that great. And so instead, what do we do? We just get on living the best we can, and, but because we're not sure about God, we don't really commit to him fully. What we commit to is what we can see and touch and hold and experience the things of this world. But our passage, our chapter, is telling us that this gospel good news is powerfully being fulfilled now. God's gospel, his good news, is powerfully being fulfilled now, and so it will surely be fulfilled later. To see that, we've got three points. Our first one is speaking the message. Can God really work? What is he doing, right? Speaking the message. What stands out from our passage are these two mysterious figures, the two witnesses. Verse 3, look at verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. See, they're given this authority from God, meaning that they have this divine task. They're called witnesses because they're not talking about themselves, but about something else. It's what they prophesy about. What is this prophetic message? Well, they are testifying to, they're witnessing to the fact that Jesus walked the earth. Jesus walked the earth. He's no ordinary man. That's right. He seemed like one of those crazy guys who claimed to be from God, had a special message, and it seemed like his folly was fully recognized because they killed him. But this is where everything changed, because Jesus rose from the dead. You know, many throughout the ages have claimed to be from God or some special spiritual figure, but none have claimed to be from God, allowed themselves to die, but then come back from the dead again. That's the gospel. That's the message that we believe And there's this future prophetic element to it, which is that Jesus, not only did he die and come back from the dead, he rose to heaven, he's in heaven above, and he will return. That's the message for the world to hear. And that is our good news in its fullness, the church's good news in its fullness. See, we believe that God sent Jesus into the world. Um, he died as a sacrifice to bring atonement and forgiveness with God. If we can put it another way, this message is simply that God has declared this period of amnesty with this fallen, rebellious world. Now is the time to return to God by being forgiven through Jesus. And that amnesty period will be over when Jesus returns. This message is the message of the church It must continue to be declared and shared. But the reality is that it is hard to speak about this message if you find it hard to believe. It is a ridiculous sounding message. A religion centered on a crucified king. But I want us to stop and pause and consider this message a little bit more for ourselves. And I wanna offer two strands of evidence. First, for Christians, your own personal testimony is proof that God is at work. God has the power to rescue people from addictions. He releases people from horrific abuses. He can empower unbelievable forgiveness. He can get victims and perpetrators freed from the bondage of sin and the devil. That's the kind of stuff where you realize, whoa, God is truly at work, and I can see it in people's lives. That excites me. It wakes me from my spiritual slumber. In fact, it reminds me that God has done a miracle in me too because you know, as nice as I am, I was actually far from God, but he's the one who brought me close. I was lost, but he found me. I was dead but he made me alive. I mean, that's my salvation story. If you're a Christian, isn't that your salvation story too? Proof is in our lives. But second, I want us to consider this gospel message because this ridiculous message about a crucified Savior, it changed the world. We're not talking about some ordinary philosophy or ideology or worldview. Listen to what this author, uh, Tom Holland, he's an atheist historian, but listen to what he says about observing the impact of Christianity on the world. Uh, If you have your programs, it's a lengthy quote, so I've I've written it down for you. It's something for you to follow along on. This is what he writes in his book, Dominion, How Christianity Remade the West. To be a Christian is to believe that God became and suffered a death, became man, and suffered a death as terrible as any mortal has ever suffered. This is why the cross, that ancient implement of torture, remains what it has always been, the fitting symbol of the Christian revolution. It, is the, it has the audacity of it, the audacity of finding in a twisted and defeated corpse the glory of the creator of the universe, that serves to explain more surely than anything else the sheer strangeness of Christianity, and this is the main point, and of the civilization to which it gave birth. See, today the power of this strangeness remains alive, as alive as it has ever been. It is manifest in the great surge of conversions that has swept Africa and Asia over the past century. In the conviction of millions upon millions that the breath of the spirit, like a living fire still blows upon the world. And in Europe and North America, in the assumptions of many more millions who would never think to describe themselves as Christian. All are heirs to the same revolution. A revolution that has at its molten heart the image of a God dead on a cross. Western civilization, it couldn't be what it is today, what we know it, without Christianity. See, it's one thing for a philosophy or a religion to say, believe in this God, he's almighty and you, he deserves, um, he's, he's great in power and he deserves your uh, fealty. So you have to obey him, right? Humanistic religions today, now it's like, don't believe in that God, just believe in you and do great things. But it's completely different, a completely different thing to base the power of a religion on a crucified king. See, that's ridiculous. No man could think that up and actually pull it off, unless he really wasn't an ordinary man. Maybe his words were true. See, from this quote and this perspective, you might still not believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, but at least let us get our facts right about the Christian faith. Sure, there have been a lot of abuses committed by the church, but overall, the church has made a wholly positive impact on Western civilization. Make sure you get that right, because the implications are significant, even eternal. Whereas for us, the church, as believers, I mean, this is what we believe. Jesus has saved, and he's going to return to save, finally, right? Not only are we being reminded to stay on task, prophesying that Jesus will return, but this is also precisely why Jesus has to return. He is going to return to complete the work that he has started. There's a verse in the Bible that many people find um, really comforting. You might recognize it. It's from the Apostle Paul in Philippians 1.6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We find comfort in that, hope in that verse. We know that God's got our lives. He's got a plan for us. He's going to make all things right for us. Yes, he will when he returns. Jesus has fulfilled the promises of God and he will finish it all at the end. Our chapter today is reminding us that God is wanting the church to continue the task of speaking about Jesus and that it is not futile or vain. Challenging, but not futile or vain. We can believe that God is at work. Now, it's with a perspective like that that will keep us on point as we try to work out the rest of this chapter, which is pretty crazy. So, for example, who are these two witnesses? Verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. They're called olive trees and lampstands. Because in the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, was likened to an olive tree, and it's the same metaphorical way that Jesus would speak about him being the vine and us, the people, being the branches. There's an organic connection between Jesus and his people. Then in Revelation chapter one, we learned that the lampstands were actually symbolic representations of the church. We're the ones who have the light. We're making the light known in the world. And so these two witnesses are symbolic representations of the church that has been formed by the gospel. Okay? And they're going to witness or prophesy for 1,260 days. Now that is also symbolic for a definite period. Look at verse 2. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out for it will be given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. 42 months, it's another way of referring to that period which is 1260 days. It's not to be taken literally but as a period with a definite beginning and a definite end and an indefinite middle. What is that indefinite middle? What are the constraints of that? Well, Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return. Sometime in between. So do the signs of the book of Revelation help us to predict when Jesus will return? No. Then why this particular number? Because it is roughly three and a half years. 1,260 days. Three and a half years, which is half of the perfect number seven. Seven. We'll see that three-and-a-half figures um, later in the passage. But the number symbolizes God's plan, that it is in effect but not fully complete. Not the halfway point, but just some definite part leading to a clear end. See, that's how vague and loose we're to hold to these numbers. It's just enough to give us some definition, but not enough to give us real detail, as in we're talking about a 1,260 literal 24-hour period time. That would be an important question to work out. Like, oh, if this is a literal time period, then when does that time period begin? We would want to know that, wouldn't we? But can we find that out? We don't have to wait for these two mysterious figures to show up on the world stage at a particular date and time. We don't need these guys to... Reaffirmed the gospel message that all of us are to believe and to make known the gospel in and of itself is sufficient in its power and we see that power that's what these pa- these men these symbolic representations um, elicit the crazy powers of the witnesses verse five look at verse five and if anyone would harm them fire pours out from their mouths and consume their foes if anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesy; that they have the power of the, over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. See, the language is like we're talking about mythical superheroes, but their signs, the, these powers, are very much like the miracles that Moses and Elijah performed in the Old Testament. They were raised up to accomplish God's will and call his people Israel to account. Moses called down the ten plagues in the Exodus. Elijah, he went up against the wicked king Ahab, commanding nature and the skies. And what's the point of of the language being displayed and portrayed this way? Well, just as those two figures in the Old Testament spoke powerfully through signs and wonders, the message of the church prophesying the gospel has that same kind of power. It's not the kind where you and I can speak and fire comes out of our mouths. That might be something else that comes out of our mouths. But it's a real power because the message of the gospel can really determine heaven and earth. This is what Jesus told his disciples. Matthew sixteen nineteen. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed on heaven. See, how we receive this message, this gospel message that we're to prophesy as a church, that unlocks the direction of our futures and our eternities. That's the kind of power that this message has. Isn't that the gospel that we believe? That's the message, now we got the dangers, second point. In chapter 10, the previous chapter, John was told to eat this little scroll that was open and that it would be bittersweet. That's the prophecy of the gospel. The scroll's message was that you know, there's good news, that's what gospel means, but not many will receive this news as good news and so it will be received with a bitter taste. Many will try to trample on the people of God. Our experience as a church in the world, while we're waiting for Jesus, will be difficult. Verse 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Again, crazy scene, crazy language. Who likes this over DC and Marvel? Raise your hands. No. This is is language that the Bible can also use to convey clear truths. It's very clear that the church prophesying the message of Jesus, upholding the good news, we're in a spiritual battle and we're being opposed by a spiritual fierce foe. This beast. We'll find out more about the beast in subsequent chapters. But it will seem like the church's candle will be snuffed out, that there will be no more light, no more power, dead. That's what it will seem like. We're told, um, to just to drive it home, verse 8, two witnesses, their dead bodies will be lying in Sodom and Egypt, what was symbolically the place where Jesus was crucified. In essence, these two witnesses will face the same fate as their Lord. They will die as martyrs for speaking about Jesus. Jesus died in Jerusalem. That's where he was crucified. And thankfully, we get this symbolic, I mean, this interpretive clue. We're to take this symbolically. That's the language that the text uses for us. Jesus is symbolically the equivalent of Sodom and Egypt, two notorious places in the Bible. And why? Why? Again, that's where Jesus was killed, by the Romans and by Israel. See, that's what God thinks of the city of Jerusalem. We're not talking about a literal city or about a literal nation finding favor in God's sight anymore. Christianity's future is not linked to the physical city of Jerusalem nor the nation of Israel. Now, i got to say, I am so thankful for the nation of Israel In the Middle East, they are our only democratic um, ally. They are a key partner. I love Israel. And I love them for for their social and political um, partnership. But in terms of spirituality, it doesn't make a difference. But we're continuing to see that there is stuff that's going to happen to the church. And it's going to be eerie. Just look at verse 9. For three and a half days, some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. Just imagine what that looks like. When I think about that, I think about the actual breaking news that I remember hearing about where U.S. soldiers in Somalia were killed by Islamic extremists. I remember seeing the footage on the news of the Black Hawk helicopter that was crashed as well as the body that was chained to the back of a pickup truck being dragged around the streets. And all the Somalis on the ground celebrating their little victory over the U.S. That kind of stuff really does happen. Where they just leave the dead bodies out there. But really, it's not about US versus the world, it's not about Christianity versus Islam, but it's about how the world would treat the people of God. Rome wasn't built in one day, and it won't fall in, it didn't fall in one day. Likewise, the Christian West will be last It's slowly eroding. There may come a day when Christianity will be in the minority. Church may become an oppressed minority. We see that in other places. It's hard to imagine that here in in, in America, but what if that happens? Does that mean we have no more power? Is that over for the church, our Christian faith? Verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Folks, this is like crazy, fantastic imagery, but all it's communicating are the basic truths of the Christian faith. See, it's not by, might, not by power, but by the Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. After seven days, God's plan will be fulfilled. God, by his spirit, would breathe life into his people again in resurrection power. Jesus was raised from the dead. Death could not keep him down. And that is all of our journeys to eternal life as well. The gospel path of death and resurrection. What we believe now is what keeps us for eternity. I mean, if you're a believer, that's what you believe, right? That's the hope that the Christians have. That gives them the courage to be able to stand against opposition, even give their lives for Christ. And that cause hasn't been written off. It's not been deemed unworthy or crazy. No, the gospel message endures even in the face of opposition and suffering. This hope of eternal life is what gives people the courage and the strength to continue on. Yes, it's not easy to believe, let alone to live out. And yet we can. And we want to make sure how it is we can and why we can. And that brings us to our final point, claiming the victory. I want to point out how the chapter opens and how the chapter closes. The chapter opens with this measuring rod it's all about God's protection, verse one, Revelation 11:1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, "Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there." What was John told to measure? Three things: the temple, the altar and the worshipers, the people. These are important symbols where the temple symbolized the place of God's dwelling. The altar was the place of sacrifice, first Christ's sacrifice, and then the people's sacrificial service. And we're dealing with the worshipers themselves. They're called worshipers. We're to take this temple symbolically because John is not talking about a literal temple. That was destroyed back in AD 70. That temple is not going to be rebuilt. It's not to be taken literally. What's being measured then? Verse 2. Let's see what's not being measured. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Okay, so what we're seeing is that what's being measured and what's not being measured, and God is symbolically demarcating the people, his people, from the rest of the world, making it clear who belonged to him. This is the seal of protection, you can say. We see that in the book of Numbers, where God takes account of all of his people, how they will be preserved, and they're going to be preserved using these symbols like the temple, which we now know is the body of Christ, not a structure of brick and mortar. And so God's going to protect his church, the body of Christ, and our worship. What's being pointed out is that our worship, that is our strength program for protection. What we're doing here right now, we are exercising not just our minds, but also our hearts and our spirits to strengthen our convictions. And together, we need each other for that because on my own, I'm thinking, I don't know if I believe this, I don't know if I can carry on with this, but when we come together, God, by his spirit, works, reinforcing for each one of us. Yes, we all believe the same truth. He's transformed your heart. He's transformed my heart. We are walking miracles of conversion. And we go through these repeated motions, rituals, coherent thoughts of what we believe, where we experience grace and love from God by his spirit and then through one another. It's where we're called, where we confess, we're consecrated by His Word, and then we're commissioned and sent out. What's going on here, our worship, this is significant. This is bodybuilding work, being renewed, emboldened for the spiritual battle as we step into the world. This is important, and we keep doing this right into eternity. And how the chapter closes is how history will come to an end. Verse 13. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God, to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Again, a lot of confusing things about this passage, but one conclusion is very clear. The kingdom of the world has now become the kingdom of his Lord and Christ. Jesus is going to return and make it very clear to everyone that he owns all of this. He's going to claim what is his. Everyone will know it, and no one can deny it. Verse 13, it's notoriously difficult to interpret I've read commentators say that this is the most difficult verse to understand in the book of Revelation. Things don't line up. It doesn't work according to our linear sequence of understanding. And this is a case where we have this ambiguous text. It's got to be understood in light of the clearer texts. So there is a clear takeaway from this verse, verse 13. You know, the church, we give God joyful worship now, But all are accountable to God. So if you're not worshiping God now, later you will be forced to acknowledge the truth. Beholding God in terror, you will give him the glory that he was always due. How good it is that we could give it to him now, right? Verse 16. Verse 16. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. All the opposing forces of God and his goodness will be dealt with once and for all. God's people who have clung on in faith, their faith will have proven true. They will be vindicated for what they believe. This will especially be sweet for the 24 elders around the throne, the apostles and the leaders of Old Testament Israel who passed on this gospel message of Jesus to the church. It all came to fruition. We get a final glimpse of what this end scene reminds us of, which is the gospel simply. Verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was open and, there was, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail. The temple in heaven is opened up and a clear access is made to the ark of the covenant. In the Jerusalem temple in the Old Testament, The Ark of the Covenant, it was in the most holy place. It's sectioned off in that inner sanctum. And one day a year, God would come down in his glory cloud at the Day of Atonement to let people know that Israel was forgiven for their sins, they were atoned for, and that they were right with God. That glory cloud would come down, his presence would be made known on the mercy seat right above the Ark of the Covenant. Jesus would be that day of atonement, ram that would be sacrificed. He would fulfill all the covenant promises of God. And when he died at the cross, there was that scene where the temple curtain was torn in two, signifying the spiritual end of the temple sacrificial system, making a way to God. But here in this vision, instead of a temple curtain tearing, what we see is an ark. The Ark of the Covenant in clear view, symbolizing the path has been made clear, cleared by the work of Christ. We will be with God because of his work as of atonement. That gospel is powerfully being fulfilled now in our lives, what we see in the church, how the church has impacted the world, and it will powerfully be fulfilled at the end. This is the story arc of the church. There is hope for us. The author Eugene Peterson says, the spirit's style while preparing Christians for the long work of endurance is to interrupt with interludes of assurance. That's what this chapter is. A reminder of what our good news is, that it is powerful, an interlude of assurance. It's reminding us that Jesus has risen, he has ascended, He will return. May this settle our hearts as believers. Perhaps it will even recalibrate our hearts, remind us what our faith is all about. See, the gospel plan awaits completion, but the question for us is, does the gospel plan need to be completed in your heart? Do we need to fully understand the picture of the gospel? That is, do you really believe Jesus is going to come back? And if so, would we work that into our prayers, demonstrating what our hearts are actually longing for, not in the way of escapism, but because we understand what God has started, he will complete. That we would want it, would we pray about it. And if you're not a believer, this ridiculous news about a crucified Savior, it has ridiculous power it's not going away, God's not going away, the church is not going away, this is his world, this is his world, maybe, would you be able to acknowledge that for the very first time? Might you even consider, oh, there is an amnesty period that Jesus will return. You will not find a more loving and gentle invitation than from a crucified king. Let's pray. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and saints, those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. We thank you, O God, for your plan of salvation, for this good news that indeed you worked in the world, not according to might nor by power, not according to the wisdom of the world, but through your son, the Lord Jesus. We praise you for him. We thank you for him. We pray that we would believe in him and follow him all our days. Help us to remember. Help us to believe. Help us to pray that yes, Lord Jesus, you died, you rose again, and you will return. May that change the way we think, the way we make our decisions, the way we make our plans, because we recognize your work in the world and in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.